Our speaker tonight is really a treat for us. He's a professor of philosophy at Fordham. He's the chairman of the Roman Forum, the father of Roman Rostra. He's the co-host on Drama of Truth with Father Maselli. He's an author of a book called Happiness and Christian Hope, a very good book, one that you might sometime be interested in picking up. In 1969, with the insight that he had into Catholic education and where it was going, he had the nerve to pull his children out of school and start his own school. Witness 30 such schools around the country came into being. It didn't live and die. Like most of us, when our kids get out of school, we leave the interest in that school to someone else to carry on and further and so on. That isn't to say that he turned his back on it. What I'm sharing with you is that he moved on with his kids. The founder of Holy Innocent School in Kinelon, New Jersey, 1969, the first of 30 throughout the country. Dr. William Mara, he's going to share with us his thoughts, his experiences, and his hopes on Catholic education. Dr. Mara. Thank you, Walter. Fathers in Christ and sisters in Christ and friends in Christ. I wish I were going to talk about a pleasant topic like nuclear holocaust. But my topic on Catholic education is still more depressing and more frightening. So if you think Father Michelli scared you last time on the Antichrist, you better be prepared for a new exorcism. Because I think it's the most depressing topic, especially if you're a parent or if you're a teacher trying to teach in the light of Christ's truth. And you see the incredible symbol intellectually speaking, around you. I want to, however, not be strictly pessimistic. So I've called this Catholic education the crisis and the challenge. I'm going to spend what you might consider a disproportionate time on the crisis, but I hope at least to end with some hopeful and consoling notes. All of them, by the way, rooted in the present pope. If it were not for the personality and holiness of this present Pope, I think I would cop out, because I would say it's hopeless. Humanly speaking, it is hopeless. But given this gift of God from heaven, there's plenty of room for genuine Christian hope, and we are even obliged, I say, to stand behind this great leader given to us by God through no merit of our own, and work with him to try and cleanse these stables which he has inherited. It's probably the greatest crisis in the church since the fourth century of Arian heresy, and some people still don't know it. Some people still think it's a minor problem. Now, I begin with the way many people would evaluate any, any going concern that 
Uh, I've been in 40 uh, states. I've lectured in 40 states and six Canadian provinces in England and Scotland. And I think I know pretty much a lot about at least physical plant. I must have been in several hundred churches in the different states, including Alaska, by the way. And one thing that impresses me is that if you merely look at the externals, Catholic education is alive and flourishing. The brick-and-mortar crew, the fundraising people, are eminently successful. So that you go to a place and you see a superbly uh, modern school with the best gym and the best facilities, and then you go to the parish council, and there's the lay committee on education and the CCD committee and the continuing education committee and the religious director, the director of religious education, and they have degrees, some of them from Fordham which reassures people about the, the accuracy and the depth of their content. And even the enrollments are now holding steady. And in fact, the parochial schools are, are increasing enrollments, and it's no surprise, because the competition is so bad, even dangerous, that even if the Catholic schools taught nonsense, people would still be attracted to them because it's relatively safe in a Catholic school. I say it's nothing more than that. It need be nothing more than that. So, prima facie, on the surface, you would say that maybe other things are wrong in the church, and maybe other things are wrong in the world, but at least Catholic education is a flourishing enterprise, and you might be somewhat unhappy or uneasy about something your children are bringing home or something you sense, but by and large, you're quite satisfied. And I don't blame you. I'd say that is the perception I would get from the outside. On the other hand, I am an American enough to believe in pragmatism to a certain extent. And the typical pragmatic philosopher says he doesn't care about theories and explanations and he doesn't care about all this wonderful rhetoric. What issues from it? What's the consequence? And a typical example would be this, that what would you think of an automobile manufacturer who took you to his immense factory, something like River Rouge in Michigan, and you saw these tremendous assembly lines and these smelters and these glassworks and these engineers and all the blueprints, and you say, boy, and robots. You say, boy, this place is flourishing. But at the end of the assembly line, you had cars which wouldn't start. Cars in which the wheels are out of alignment. Cars which blow up. Cars where the brakes don't work. But then your point is that this is the fruits. That after showing us this wonderful assembly line and all the latest robots and all the latest engineering reports and having all these things, but the end product is wretched. Now friends, I say that when it comes to Catholic education, let's be pragmatic. Let's look at the end product of our grade schools, our high schools, our colleges, and may I add our seminaries. And I mean to throw no suspicions on any individual case. I am intelligent enough and knowledgeable enough to know there are exceptions, honorable exceptions. I know products of seminaries which are superb, young priests just ordained. But they are the most unhappy of all, by the way. They could tell you horror stories 
compared to which nuclear holocaust is a picnic. And I mean Roman Catholic seminaries. And they're not all that distant from us. So that I would say this, that when it comes to the reason of being of Catholic schools, we are not here to play tennis or to have football teams or, or whatever, that we are based on a supernatural vision. We believe in God and in Christ and in the church. We believe that life on earth is but an antechamber to eternity. And everything must be judged in terms of eternity. And therefore, our Catholic school system was begun by the saintly John Bishop Newman of Philadelphia at tremendous sacrifice in money and, and resources because he did not want Catholic boys and girls or youth or scholars to absorb the poison of a pagan worldview. He wanted a Catholic worldview. He wanted the youngsters to be saturated with the supernatural. That doesn't mean that they would then be ignorant of their multiplication tables or grammar, quite the contrary. They were academically very good schools. But the main thing was the primacy of faith, the primacy of the supernatural, and this was accomplished in two different respects. One had sound religious information, which is an academic discipline, and one also had the aid of sound religious formation, which is a work of grace and of spirit and of character and of will, but it is tremendously aided by the atmosphere, which used to be exuded from the typical Catholic school, whether beginning with the religious habit of the sister who taught the crucifix on the wall, sometimes daily mass, the angelus, the real catechism, the spirit of prayer, this was what formed many of us. If any here have been fortunate enough to be the product of Catholic schools when they were Catholic, I was old enough to have taken the best of both worlds. I graduated from a, a grade school in 1941 run by the Sisters of Charity. It was superb. It would have cheered Bishop Newman. I went to a Jesuit high school which was magnificent. Today I wouldn't send my dog to that high school. I have three of the most intelligent sons, that's the father's pride speaking, I for, would forbid them to go to that high school. And yet they would have flourished there academically. And then I happened to go to the University of Detroit when the Jesuits uh, were again in those founder days, and Fordham University when the great Dietrich von Hildebrand was professor in the graduate school. And I claim I know enough from my youth, and I even saw the seeds of, of catastrophe already being sown then, and I know enough from my middle age now to tell you that it's 180 degrees reversal. If things were X in my youth, they are non-X. If they went north, it's going south. East, it's going west. Nothing is the same. And this is not accidental. This has nothing to do with, with relatively trivial matters. This goes to the core of education, as I hope to demonstrate. Now, here was the test I used, my pragmatic test. 
I say, give me an institution, and never mind how clean it is and how many scholarships it has and how many PhDs on the faculty. Is it the case that if a youngster of any age enters this institution with a weak faith, he will graduate with a strong faith? If so, that's a good institution. I don't care how you explain it. Or is it that he comes already with a strong faith, thanks to the family, and he leaves with a still strengthened faith, which has been deepened, and which has been given adequate reason. You know, St. Peter said to the Christians, give reasons for the hope that is within you. The early Christians believed, and that's an act of faith, but St. Peter wanted an intellectual support to faith which in modern times is called apologetics, and a sound Catholic institution would take people who believe, who have strong faith, and by sound academic disciplines, they would afford these people reasons for their faith, philosophical, historical, scriptural, cultural. Now, friends, if that is the case, then the institutions are magnificent. My test is... They enter with a weak faith, it is strengthened. They enter with a strong faith, and it is deepened. And one is given reasons for his faith. That's a successful Catholic program. Everything else is secondary. Now, my talk is to note that in my experience, and I've read widely, and I've met people all over the world, I stand subject to any individual correction, It may be that all my words are superfluous in this area. It may be that by a special grace, your educational institutions have escaped my general indictment. I doubt it. But my point is, my experience is that the average person will enter a grade school with strong faith, and by the eighth grade, that faith has been corroded, weakened. High school, it's the same way, and of course, by the time it's college, there is no faith. I've taught at Fordham University for 27 years. Most of my students are still nominally Catholic. Half of them come from alleged Catholic homes and Catholic high schools. I would say 5% even know what the church teaches. I don't say believe it. Even know what the church teaches. Maybe 1% believes it and cares about it. The other 99% are as pagan as can be. And my experience is not isolated. Now, I therefore, so therefore I say, if you enter with a strong faith, it will be weakened. If you enter enter with a weak faith, which most people do, at whatever level, it will be destroyed. To me, it's one of the great miracles of grace that I see someone at Fordham who prays. I mean, really prays. Who follows the Holy Father in moral teaching instead of a smart-out theologian. Especially when it comes to the ethics of sex or the ethics of marriage. To me, it's a miracle of grace that it it reminds me of St. Paul that where sin abounded, grace did more abound. And my point is that where heresy, abominations abound, grace abounded more. So these select elect somehow have stammered through one of the most 
scandalous epochs in the history of the church and they believe and they pray. That's the miracle of Christ. So my talk tonight begins with this depressing note. I am going to emphasize what I claim is the fact of the decadence of Catholic education very briefly. I then want to analyze in brief detail the causes of the decadence. And I will not put the entire burden on the school system. That's not fair. No school system could be that corrupt and that stupid. It needs help, and it gets it. And thirdly, I want to suggest a few solutions, because if there are parents in this audience, you have, you are, you have hostages. The very fact that you're a parent puts upon you a responsibility, not for the mere material welfare of your youngster. That's the easiest part. But the parent not only procreates, but is called upon God to educate in the faith his offspring. And if you are such parents, and if you understand and accept what I say, you will be in despair. And it behooves you to look for a solution. Because everything else is secondary to how you discharge this sacred responsibility of the spiritual, religious education of your youngsters. Don't tell me how many Cadillacs you've given them and how many Harvard scholarships they've won. I, I, first of all, if you knew Harvard, you wouldn't be that proud. It's almost as bad as the rest of them. Only it has a Boston accent. There's as much decadence in learning in the Ivy League as anywhere else. And academically, I mean, never mind morally, of course morally. But academically except for the technological subjects, which are easy. Anybody can tell whether an engineer is an idiot or not. But when it gets to theology, history, philosophy, every charlatan parades his Ph.D. and seduces his group. Now, I'm going to speak, first of all, about the universities, because I am most acquainted with them. But as you will see, I have all kinds of contacts with the lower grades because my own children and because I've gone around lecturing so much that I would say, uh, I say Fordham is a typical university. It's no better nor no worse. Notre Dame is about the same level. And uh, then there are all, all kinds of colleges and universities run by the church. Juridically, they are no longer Catholic. They yielded ten years ago to, to the, the enticement of free government money. So juridically, they're no longer Catholic. But nevertheless, when they raise funds, they put on the Roman collar. And they tell you about the Catholic tradition. And, and you're suddenly, you're, you're always remembered in prayers on All Souls Day. And they invite you to Midnight Mass. So they're trying to, to foster the impression that here the faith is well. And my impression is there's very little faith among the student body. Very little, and I'm being generous. My real impression is it's almost nothing. If you told me I'm in the group of a Catholic community which is studying, I could not see any evidence of it in their dress, in their speech, in their knowledge, in their value system. In their, in their taking a partner without benefit of wedlock and sharing dormitories on campus. Please. We've, we've transcended the puritanism of those terrible pre-conciliar days. So right on, and this is at many a school 
We have boys and girls together in the same bed. Now, there's very little evidence of Christian Catholic formation. As I say, they're pagans. Once in a while, some of them will go to daily mass, but you should see some of the masses. Sacrilegious. Absolutely illicit, and usually also invalid. Self-made canons, self-made altar breads, every absurdity of clowns' dress and so on, on the part of the clergy, the women uh, serving and everything, and readings from Teilhard de Chardin, that doctor of the church. So don't tell me this proves Christian formation. It proves Christian deformation. But you might say, well, after all, university is not there to make saints out of the kids, but it's to make scholars out of the kids. Fair enough. Not quite accurate. But then I say, there's very little Catholic information. I mean, I would almost settle for this. I would almost settle for a whole campus full of sinners, overt public sinners, who break every law, but at least who know the Ten Commandments. That would be progress. I would say, well, they're not living up to the commandments, but neither am I. We're all sinners. But at least they know about it. They could take the Nicene Creed, which we allegedly say every Sunday, and they could explain certain of those difficult clauses of the creed. They would know the historical background of Christology and of the Arian heresy and the Nestorian heresy. No, don't worry about that. They don't have the ghost of a chance of knowing that. As a matter of fact, you might remember that sacrilegious opera, Jesus Christ Superstar. I consider that one of the thickest things that has ever happened in the society. Anyone who loves Jesus could not endure that blasphemy. And when I said that among Catholic high schools and colleges, you know what the answer was? Wow. At least the youngsters got to know something about Jesus Christ. You get it? We have the most expensive educational system in the history of the church. We have all these armies of professionals, and they have to go to a rock opera to find out who Jesus Christ is. And meanwhile, to find out all these blasphemous allusions to his love affair with little Mary Magdalene, all that sickening detail. Friend, if the church were healthy, it would vomit up the stuff. Instead, the senior class puts it on. Isn't it wonderful? I finally got Junior into religion. He's playing Judas. And Sis is playing Mary Magdalene. Isn't it wonderful? Isn't it wonderful what the Beatles did for Catholic culture? Now, I would say that the average Catholic in a Catholic campus is religiously illiterate. And I mean illiterate. He has almost no knowledge of scripture, except some half-baked quote from Raymond Brown, because it denies the virginity of Mary, or the existence of the wise men in the infancy narrative. That's the, the pet thing at the workshop now. He is illiterate in church history. He could not tell you one thing about any article of the creed, historically speaking. He would not know a single thing about Anglican orders and the dispute which Leo XIII tried to resolve a hundred years ago. He is totally ignorant of church dogma for the most part. 
And of course, he does not accept the, the Genesis myth of Adam and Eve because his sophisticated knowledge of evolution, that stressed, leads him to be a rather a bit amused at these flat earth theologians who still insist on the literal interpretation of creation. That's our product. There is no background of even Catholic culture. Now, I'm 53 years old, and I remember that the generation just above me, I I roomed at the University of Detroit at the house of a chemistry professor, and he was about 20 years older than I. You know what the names that were dropped in that house, and this was not snob appeal, Chesterton, Belloc. Everybody that age, everybody who today would be 70, who even went, say, to four years of Catholic high school, would have known Catholic culture. I don't say philosopher. Philosophy is too technical. But the writers, the poets, the essayists, Chesterton is the best example, the journalists. There was a flourishing book trade which Sheed and Ward used to surface. Forget it. No, if you mention G.K. Chesterton, people would wonder if he's a new rock group. They don't know who Chesterton is. I mean the youngsters. And probably the faculty. They're too busy going to workshops, demythologizing the Bible, to pick up Chesterton or Belloc, a great Catholic historian. And there's a tremendous boredom. This is the thing I find especially ominous, that for whatever reason, and I'm going to suggest several Your college student is terribly bored and impatient and weary with, with, quote, religion. I mean, not that he's gotten much. In fact, that's his problem. What has been served up to him as religion is adolescent pap by a creative religious education instructor who puts paste together collages or something in high school or raps about everything. So, of course, the the average person, you know, I still start my classes with the prayer, which is still legal. I can't be fired for that, but I am unique. And for this semester, I tried something different. I didn't start one class with a prayer. The students are doing still worse. So I'm going to tell my scientific evidence now that prayer helps and please do it. But there's a tremendous embarrassment among my students when I say the sign of the cross. Most of them are Catholic, please. Catholic background. But what's this mystic doing here? And of course, there are a couple of atheists and a couple of Jews, and they get very uptight because they thought they were coming to a secular school, and who's this guy embarrassing them or whatever? And I don't force compliance, and I don't get compliance. But I figure maybe I can at least be a kind of witness, and once in a while someone comes like Nicodemus in the night, with a religious question, and he sees me in the dark and talks to me knowing that I won't at least scoff at him. He won't find a priest on campus, because they, or at least he won't identify them. All, uh, they call me father, because I dress just like a priest. Tie and all, although I don't have berets. Things like that. Now, I say, this thing is so ominous, this boredom, restlessness, this weariness with religion that I am always reminded of the great 
Whitaker Chambers, this tragic figure in American letters, I claim he's the finest writer we have ever produced. He died an agnostic. He was a friend of Bill Buckley of National Review, an ex-communist who wrote the book uh, Witness and, and Cold Friday, I think he called it. Uh, he, he made an indictment of Western civilization which chills me. But Solzhenitsyn makes the same indictment. We in the West, and the West is a symbol for this cultural group, including Europe and North America. He says, we in the West have so lost our spirit, our faith, that our young people have nothing to live for and nothing to die for. And that's what frightens me. Oh, teenage suicide is going up. Yeah, that's because we don't have enough counseling. That's because of the bomb. You understand? No, friend. It's because we've cheated them out of their vision. They had a right. The Catholic youth had a right to their treasure. We've defrauded them. I believe Mr. Sheen gave as a beginning, as an introduction to anyone who came here, my tape, defrauded heirs. And I emphasize that point there. Therefore, I find among the university students, with one or two exceptions, let me always acknowledge that, that like their secular counterparts who live without hope, as St. Paul says, like their secular counterparts, they have no real ideals in life, no hopes in life. Rather, they have a kind of grim determination to be a doctor, a lawyer, an engineer, an accountant. That's going to legitimate life. That will make it all worthwhile. So in those subjects directly leading to a profession, they work. They don't, they don't moan over the difficult part of engineering, chemistry, physics, accounting, but don't get too close in religion, and above all, don't teach ethics or whatever. And I say, what an empty generation with this grim pragmatism. And they've got the girls doing it to it. Bad enough the men went always after the professions, but at least the women had thought of a happy marriage. But no, no, the women got to be lawyers and engineers and generals too. And they all got to work. That's the only fulfillment in life is to be an executive. And then why are half of the executives alcoholics? All the professionals I meet are as wretched as the housewives. But the women have been sold a bill of goods too that the degree, the professional degree, the, 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 the whole... Uh, upper class uh, way of life, that's where happiness lies. And they go toward it, toward their suffocation as human person. Had they known Shakespeare or Chesterton or even one or two words in the Bible, they could have been disabused of the stupidity. Now, the average Catholic, so I say this is, this is what I find in the few students I have. And I notice them, all the students I don't have, I notice their gyrations at their mixers, and I read their stupid stuff in the paper. A few years ago, our official paper was filled with, with four-letter words. Really mature. Every filthy word was there. And they had, in, in the introductory issue to the freshmen, they had, a, they had a, where you can find it. And they had in alphabetical order all the services available to the students. And under Z was the zoo. 
and that's up in the Bronx near this and that. And under A is a bourse. Jesuit school. St. Ignatius. Updated. The way Vatican II mandated it. Now they're much more delicate. You won't find abortion under A. It's under P. Pregnancy help. And then they'll actually give you a choice. The pro-life or the abortion group. They've changed. There's been a conversion. A lot of prayer. This is why I'm so bitter, friend. It's the greatest hypocrisy in the world. And anyone who doesn't know it ought to have his eyes opened. That they are, they are succeeding in this travesty because of simplistic trust on the part of people. Oh, that couldn't be true because they're Jesuits or they're Dominicans or they're this. Well, I'm sorry, friends, it is true. And by the way, I'm quite conscious I'm being taped. In fact, I'm double taped. Some people try to sneak tape recorders in and because they're afraid uh, uh, that they'll be noticed. I am proud to be taped. And anyone who thinks I misrepresent things, please ask me for a copy of the tape and, and we'll go over the facts. I'm quite serene about the accuracy of what I'm saying. And if you ask Father Michelli, he could tell you a few more stories. And in fact, most of the people that I recommend to Mr. Sheen as part of the Roman roster, including Father Smith, the dean of the seminary, fully agree with what I'm saying. I've said it in front of them. And I've yet to be contradicted. Now, when they go to a so-called Catholic university, you might say, well, maybe the university can get them out of this rut. Maybe that's why I want to send my kids to a good Catholic university and, and the good teachers there, the laity and the religious, will, will snap them out of it. Well, I say, no, it won't happen. It, it'd be a miracle of grace if it does happen. First of all, when they get to a university level, age 18 or 19, the damage is almost always done. It's almost completely done. They are already destroyed. Adolescence is when you get the destruction so easily. So, it's almost irremediable, the damage, by the time they're 18. But even if they were able to be remedied, the university has no ability to remedy it for the following reason. Most of the time, there are no courses offered on Christology, on the Council of Trent, the Council of Nicaea. Just check over your college catalogs and see. Sometimes, though, things are still worse. The courses are offered by heretics. People who have been grounded in process theology, process philosophy. Teilhard de Chardin is their, is their, is their uh, father of the church. An absolutely heretical man, an arch-heretic, who based his wretched theology on, on the myth of evolution. So uh, sometimes I say, well, gee, this school is pretty bad. It doesn't offer a course on, on the Vatican Council one, but this other school is still worse because they offer Hans Kuhn teaching Vatican Council one. No thanks, Father Kuhn. Uh, thanks, but no thanks. You're worse than nothing. And then, of course, if ever there is an orthodox course taught, there will be no students. Now, I am a philosopher, not a theologian. I, despite my prayer at the beginning of class, I claim my statements are verifiable through reason, not through faith. But I like to think that reason supports faith. 
And I have exactly two students in one class, my most important subject, epistemology. See, we have no requirements. I have two students in that. Then I have a mob in my evening class three. That's on ethics. I then have 12 in a very trivial logic course. And I am an associate professor. I've been there 27 years. I used to have seven courses of 40 students each. And I think I had an impact. Right now, there's no way I can get a student. Last semester, I taught English grammar. Remedial, of course. So don't be so impressed by caps and gowns and, 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 and the commencement speaker. I tell you, friends, it's worse than I'm saying. The only reason I'm being so moderate is that I'm being taped. If I ever pull the plug, I'll tell you some more stories about higher education in this country. Now, the students, I say, therefore, are not willing and not able to follow university courses on religion or philosophy. Well, then they said, well, that might blame the high school. Then it must be they're doing something wrong in the high schools. Yes, that, that's part of the truth. You can always pass the buck, and you're right. And then, but the high schools say the same thing. Well, we get these kids after eight years of Catholic grade school, and they're already wandering around. So then shift the blame to the grade school. Well, that's partly right. But I want to tell you this. I'm going to get into the causes later on. But the bottom line is this. My great friend from Scotland, Hamish Fraser, I say he knows more about Catholic social teaching than any man I've ever met. He was a communist soldier in Spain in 1935 in the Franco-Spanish Civil War. And he converted to the Roman Catholic Church by reading the papal encyclicals on social justice, Leo XIII, Pius XI. Well, Fraser is about 70 years old now. He's in Scotland. He edits this superb journal called Approaches, which comes out two or three times a year. And I read Fraser. I get about 40 magazines a month. I always read Fraser whenever he comes. And he has this ominous comment. He says, as things now stand, the Roman Catholic Church has no institutionalized way to communicate the faith. That the institution." The schools, the seminaries, the universities, the academies, which used to be the classical way for the faith in all of its scholarly uh, uh, appointments, was communicated to the next generation. These are out. They've been subverted. They've been somehow, they've been somehow neutralized. Is the faith being communicated? Oh, yes. Christ will not be denied. But only in an, in an ad hoc way. If you know, I just know a little bit about Irish history, but Father Gannon, a great Jesuit past president of Fordham, he wrote a little book called The Bushmasters. And in the better days of Irish persecution, after the English church apostatized from Rome, it was death to be found teaching Roman Catholicism to young people. And Father Gannon said that in Ireland there were the so-called Bushmasters, that professors from, from Louvain or from Douai in Belgium, they would sneak across the English Channel and hide in bushes, and the, teach, the pupils would come in the bushes, and they would have their Latin lesson, their theology lesson, and if any noise came, they disappeared. That was the underground institution, if you will. Well, such things exist today. My little holy innocent school is a typical thing.
little groups of, of parents getting their youngsters together. That's the way they transmit the faith. But the institutional way, that's the way to lose your faith. The easiest way to lose, a, for a young man to lose his faith in general, is to go to a seminary. And I'm not kidding you. I've got all kinds of people, including relatives, who are atheists now, thanks to certain Catholic seminaries. And I don't blame them. Uh, you'd have to be a madman to stay in that seminary and to give up a life and embrace celibacy if what the, the garbage they're teaching there is true. What sort of madness is it? Now, I'm not saying this is true of every seminary. I'm happy, I happen to think of certain major archdiocesan seminaries. And I don't mean Father Smith, although he could tell you if I pulled the plug. A few good stories, even there. But all generally considered, Father Smith Seminary is rather sober. So, what are the causes of this trouble? Whether you agree with me or not, I, I simply am bold enough, and I'd say honorable enough, to say it. Most people know it, those who know it, but they're afraid to say it. There are all kinds of, of compromising positions they may find themselves in. Well, I say I'm going for broke. I claim the time has come to speak up. But what do I claim are the causes of this devastation, whereby there is no institutional way to, to pass the faith down? The manifold. You can, and it's unjust to single out this theologian, this principal, this director of religious education. No. I say in the first place, the very times, the present culture is hostile to our faith and our morality. There's no doubt about it that the, we are living, you cannot say we are living in pagan times. That's too easy. That's too honorable. Pagan Greece had its abominations. But there was also a certain innocence in real pagan times. You see, the pagans are saved, and I believe the mercy of God will, will, will be based on this, because they never knew Christ. Plato and Aristotle were the greatest geniuses of all time, probably. But even so, their times, despite marvelous things, had horrendous other realities, including slavery, including every kind of uh, sexual abomination, including putting infants to death. But nevertheless, that wasn't so bad because, as I say, they never knew the light of Christ. But we are a post-Christian era. We have consciously turned against Christ, we being the collective mentality, the media, the professors, the, the literati. We are hostile to Christ. That's why Father Michelli is so right about the Antichrist, not merely the pre-Christian, but the hostile anti-Christian. That, that is the atmosphere of our day. And therefore, it's very, very hard, even if we had St. Pius X as rector, if we had, uh, if we had uh, Cardinal Newman as professor, if we had the greatest faculty, the greatest curriculum in the world, things would already be extremely difficult because we live in poison, moral, intellectual poison. We are living in an incredible spiritual, environmental death. The ecologists should worry more about spiritual pollution 
than about a mere case of, of chemicals in Lake Erie. Now, I say even the fact that television is available is already a great force for barbarism. It need not have been, but it's a fact of life. The very fact that youngsters, from the time they open their eyes, are, are exposed to that television day in, day out, five hours a day, even if, even if uh, the television was simply Mickey Mouse, Without the pornography, because you can also get with pornography on your cable. But let's say plain Mickey Mouse uh, being chased by the cat, Felix the cat. Well, five hours a day of this will scramble anybody's mind. You get stupefied. That's all it is to it. You might say, yeah, but my kids learn to read on Sesame Street. That ghoulish thing, I could teach your children to read in three months without any ghoulish characters, and they'd read with a simple phonetic system. It's the easiest part of education, despite the fact we have Harvard graduates doing all kinds of workshops on that. And you say, well, my kids learned something about the war. Yeah, they saw one arbitrary slice of somebody being burnt to death in Hanoi, and now they understand Vietnam. Huh? One of the few good things on television is Shakespeare. How many of your kids watch it? So I say, the very fact of television is already a disaster. And the very fact that rock music inundates everything, and people, it's not enough they have the radio on in their workshop, in their schoolroom, in their classroom, in their, in their homework room, but they've got to put earphones on so when they're walking to their home, they can hear it. Where is the spiritual contemplation? Where is the recollection you need for both faith and reason, it's not there. And you can't blame the, you can't blame the school for this in the general. I say, this is part of the pagan culture. It's part of a technological revolution which we did not handle. And there are all kinds of, of things. So I say that even bland stuff will stupefy people. But it's not always bland. It's very often evil, sometimes in a subliminal way. The rock lyrics are always encouraging sex and violence and drugs and, and anarchy. And the television is usually, is very often not fit for people. It's always scandalizing people. It's, a, it's an occasion of sin. Attacks against faith, ridicule of faith, making light of virginity and chastity. So, that's the first cause. Now, I don't know how far this cause operates, but I merely offer it as one possible explanation for why things are so bad in the academy. And this gets still worse, my dear friends, in all those homes which are unfortunately too many, in which both parents are absent. I have always told women, whenever the few students I have or the few people I know, when they come up to me and they're unmarried and they have two children or their husband left them, whatever, my first answer is, stay home. But then I have to go on welfare. I say, what's wrong with welfare? It's infinitely more important that a youngster have at least his mother around the house. It would be better if he had both his mother and his father. Infinitely more important that the youngster have at least a parent around that. But the parents, are, they claim they need it, and maybe once in a while they need both people working. Sometimes the mother is all alone, and she thinks she has to work. I say she'd be far better off proudly accepting welfare. She's not doing any harm to society. 
But by saying, I'm too proud to accept welfare, she'll turn her kids into delinquents, letting the babysitter be the TV, and then you'll see how much that will cost society. Welfare is a bargain if it keeps children home with the mother. And all the stupid things I've heard. He said, well, there's nothing fulfilling, it's very degrading, and there's no real future in taking care of my own children, but if I pump gas, or if I am a typist, or if I'm an executive, then I'm doing something good. And abandoning your children to hirelings. I claim the most wretched symbol of the 20th century is the nursery school. Now, I admit in a certain emergency cases it should be there, but the goal should be to phase them out. Not to keep putting them in every block to finally liberate women from this tiresome task of being with a child. And if we had the society arranged better, maybe the husband could be with the child part of the time. I fully agree with that. I don't think it's not just that we're going to shuffle all this on the woman. It's that usually the man is the breadwinner, which makes sense because the woman, when she's bearing a child, is not exactly fit to her. And it's not good that she were. Or when she nurses the child. So that because of that biological fact, it's normal that the man be the breadwinner. But certainly, I say, a parent is infinitely preferable, either one, to an electronic babysitter. And you pay a bitter price for that liberation in the consciousness of the young children here. I then say, the second reason is this, that it has always been the case that there's parental apathy in my own generation, it was, the parents act as if, I mean, even in the days when the woman stayed home, that, well, look, we bore the children, and we'll pay tuition to the school, but let the school take care of their education. That's what schools are for. And then the mother will do her cooking and her bridge playing, and the father does his, his breadwinning. But I claim that this has got to stop. This is part of my solution, by the way. We parents had better understand that in the moment a child is procreated through our act, that child is our responsibility. We are not able to pass the buck to sister or brother or father or doctor or His Excellency. They're all secondary people. In the matter of education, they are our servants. We have the primary right the primary responsibility, and in the moment we abdicate that, which is so easy, because they're willing to grab it, especially the professional schools, or, or they always tell you how inadequate you are, and we know, we know, and so there's a push-pull. They are pulling your responsibility from you, and you are pushing it towards them because it's a nuisance. It's a nuisance to supervise, to read textbooks, to talk to the children about what's going on. And also, there is this very sad thing, which I'm perfectly aware of, that the parents very often abdicate responsibility from apathy, or else they're too busy. Both of them have jobs and so on, or else their own faith is weak or non-existent, and that's still sadder. They don't know what to believe. They've ceased believing anything. So they're even a little uneasy that Junior's going to a school with religion. Well, I guess he's learning something, and sometimes they're happy, and sometimes they're not. And still worse is that if you, unfortunately, are in an irregular marriage, this is your second time around. 
and you have no benefit of a genuine annulment, well, of course, you have no convictions. You're, you've been neutralized. You're not about to, to, to confront some religious educator with this heresy. So for all these reasons, I say parents are more and more pushed aside or allow themselves to be pushed aside or they shrivel up because they're not clean. And I know how tough it is, and I'm not trying to indict anyone here, but I see this has, this has given the progressive modernists in the church a great consolation. They know they will not be challenged by 90% of the people, no matter what they do. If they strip naked, they'll get a few protests, but the rest of the people, for whatever reason, will say, well, I guess that's in the new curriculum. Um, Vatican II probably said something about it in, in that. And I, I thought I heard Father Greeley say something about that. So they, but that's why they're getting away with it. <clears throat> now, there's a third reason for this abomination to explain the fact that I claim is a fact. It's the unbelievable textbooks that have been used above all in religious education and in any subject allied to values, training, or, or usually the three areas are these, religion as such, whether it's called Bible history or, or the faith or whatever, English literature, literature could be the most magnificent vehicle for truth, it is usually the vehicle for correction, intellectual and moral, and so-called social studies, that also could be serious. Real history is great, but under social studies, they have all this half-baked uh, 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 psychology and sociology and everything else, in which every abomination is given a scientific name, and it's explained how deep it is and so on. And usually I say, though, the textbooks, and I'm speaking for the last 15 years, when we had our so-called renewal in religious education, the textbooks are usually just stupid. They're just vague, stupid things showing children at parties or swimming or a few people in the inner city near garbage cans, and you have a word, love. And that's your religion lesson for today. And years ago, the students were shown how Martin Luther King was a saint and John F. Kennedy was a saint. Saints are people who are very attracted and who love God very much, and in the past, we had St. Francis of Assisi, and today, a lot of people think Martin Luther King would be a good say, and John F. Kennedy. Two sterling characters in chastity, by the way. Perfect models. Perfect models for, for youngsters. So, they're usually just stupid. And the proof that they're stupid, by the way, is every three years they're replaced. If they're very authors had any kind of pride, if I wrote a book, a textbook, I would want to keep putting out the book in ever better editions, but the substance of the book would always stay the same. I mean, after all, you mean every three years we have a new gospel? But they, and you know how much it's cost you? The next time someone cries poverty, would you please ask to see an accounting of how many thousand copies of Benziger, Allen and Bacon, Polish Press, how many thousands of copies have they gone through in the last 15 years? And I predict at least every five years they've swept it all out, including sex education. And you ought to demand an accounting of that. Poor Cardinal Cody is being harassed because of some irregularity. There's far more scandal going on in this religious textbook stuff than anything happening in Chicago between a cardinal and his niece 
That's the real swindle in the church. Now, so I say that they have this vague psychology and sociology, and Jesus is a little buddy. Come on, Jesus, let's go ice skating. This really makes Jesus real to the people. He wanted the boys, the average man, the village idiot, actually. That's how Christ ends up being. And this, and we're supposed to be teaching souls about the Holy Redeemer? That's what we're trying to do with this drivel? But I say, usually, it's much worse. I mean, besides being bland and stupid, which is the common fare, every so often they have perversions. They have evils, heresies, blasphemies. And I want to read uh, a, a menu. Now, I admit this is 11 years old. You might say, well, things have improved. Well, not really. I, I'll, let me read these juicy selections. I'm reading from a, a little pamphlet put out by a good friend of mine, Mrs. Teresa Ickinger. And she's from Allentown, Pennsylvania area. She published this in 1970, therefore 11 years from now. And uh, she took every one of these things from a Catholic book or pamphlet being used in education in the Archdiocese of Philadelphia under an allegedly conservative archbishop. This is the Greenwood, in other words. Now, I have about 20 copies of this which are free. So if anyone here... You, you may doubt, maybe you think I'm now re- lying and I'm not reading what's there. Or maybe you say I'm reading what's there, but if I ever checked the sources, it would be wrong. I challenge anyone to take this book at home, bring it to your religious education director, and find me a wrong footnote. Tell me that Ickinger misquoted this, this, this journal called High Times or Father Di Giacomo, an alleged Jesuit educator who has perverted a generation. At my own high school, by the way. That's one of the reasons I wouldn't walk my dog near that. So here, this is from our religious education department. And uh, this is addressed to the student. Classify this treatment of a pregnant, unmarried girl as either mature or immature. That's a great psychological category. Namely, you punch her in the stomach so that she will have a miscarriage. How is Karl Marx like Old Testament prophets? Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Karl Marx. Create a dance which expresses sin, the fourth grade. Many people think that the real concern of Jesus was to save us from sin. This isn't true. Jesus came on earth as a tourist. Did you know that? There is no sin. There is no original sin. There is no actual sin. So, the, so the, the incarnation must have been a tourist. Or maybe Christ wanted to build a commune. The liturgy is, is as much a worldly thing as a teenage dance, a cabinet meeting, or a riot. While condemning abortion on the whole, Catholic theologians admit that in some cases, expelling the fetus may be the better thing. And then we have the nerve to say we're in the pro-life movement. Once a year we go down to Washington to protest, to protest uh, the abortion decision while our schools are spreading the contraceptive mentality or at least the, the anti-life mentality. That's the biggest irony of all. Uh, Christ used to go aside nightly to pray. His prayer was no different from ours, a search for the meaning of life. That's worthy of Raymond Brown. 
And here's one. Marx did not blame people for turning to religion. After all, even today when people give up on society, don't they turn to drugs? So the main target was and still is capitalism. When the revolution has succeeded, people won't need religion. Men don't listen to false promises when they have the real thing. And so on and so on. She's got a lot of juicy stuff, some of it almost unquotable, from Catholic sources. Now you might say, well, they've gotten rid of this stuff. Well, first of all, thanks to people like Mrs. Eckinger. These were proposed by PhDs in theology and religious education. These were imposed on diocesan schools by bishops. And they're still being used in sex education, it's still worse. But in the religious text, they've gotten rid of Martin Luther King and John F. Kennedy, and, and they've gotten rid of the overt scandal. But if you read it carefully, Christ still ends up being a human person, not a divine person. Whether Mary is a virgin or not, we're not sure. We only have two Gospels instead of four saying that, etc., etc. So this is part of it. And... Of course, friends, you might say, why did they run through three and four editions in the last 15 years? Well, first of all, they don't know what they're doing. The first silly person who gets his or her PhD from Catholic U in the new catechetics writes a book. And they experiment with it. Experiment. And that's what's happening. And then I want to mention in passing sex education... If there is anything from the devil, it is the sex education in the public schools and the parochial schools. Now, don't tell me I'm a, I'm a Victorian prude or Puritan. I am all for education and chastity. But this stuff served up in the average school, including the Catholic school, comes right out of Planned Parenthood, right out of Dr. Mary Calderon, the Sex Information Education Council of America. There's a 5% religion, which is a veneer, when it's used in the Catholic school. But they push fornication, the abortion mentality, the contraceptive mentality, and even homosexuality, in many cases. This very Father Di Giacomo, I've never met this man in person, it's probably just as well. I debated him on long-distance telephone call for 45 minutes. There was a Canadian station who had me on one end and him on the other end. He was in Brooklyn at the time, and we debated over sex education. He wrote a series of books called Conscience and Concern. They're still used. Look up the one on sex. He's got a real spicy seduction scene. And you give this to the young boys, 14. He got this nice broad, you know. And she's got a nice home on Long Island and her parents are away so she invites you in, you know. That's religion. That's teaching religion to young people. And this man is in good stead. He's a Jesuit. Now, still worse, I'm still going into causes. I'll eventually run out of tape and then I'll shut up. There is this new scandal I have not yet mentioned. It's the scandal of adults who have no faith. And this is still worse than everything I've mentioned just far, that we have theologians, prestigious theologians, like Charles Curran and Hans Kuhn and Richard McCormick. And they, one way or another, ridicule the faith. Have you ever heard Hans Kuhn? Have you ever read his stuff? 
Do you know what Karen is doing at Catholic U? You ever hear what Richard McCormick, the Jesuit moralist, is saying at the Kennedy Institute for Ethics? These people are prestigious, and they, there has been no enemy of the church in the past which has attacked the church so deeply as these people. And they are alleged to be loyal sons of the church. We have Judases in our midst, and they are professors at the various places. Now, you have also in the, you might say, well, many, not many people read these theologians yet, but how about the, the so-called liturgy? They don't want to call them masses any longer. They love Greek instead of Latin. But some liturgies are merely just stupid or boring. Very few ever give us the new order as it's meant to be. But we have every kind of scandalous and sacrilegious liturgy. The most sacred act, I don't say of the earth, but of heaven or earth. The most sacred act of a creature is the worship of Almighty God in and through and with Christ. The Mass is the most solemn thing in the world. And it's treated like a picnic at best. We have all kinds of clowns and all kinds of monkeys and Sesame Street characters and, and little kids babbling out and telling their stories and people riding motorcycles in churches and, and you name it. And it's very close by in your neighboring diocese there was this unfortunate Jesuit from a certain Jesuit university in New York. I won't mention where. He's about 30 feet from where I teach. Dressed like a clown and the nuns were dressed. Real clown, big red hair and bubbly nose. And he, he celebrated mass that way. It was so meaningful. Sacrilegious. But of course, only Archbishop Lefebvre is a rebel. You understand that? He's terrible. He wants the liturgy as it was until 15 years ago. So that is the worst thing you can say about a man. But every one of these abominations, I don't say they're always applauded, but they're at least tolerated. That's at least under the old regime. Things are changing. Thank God. The church may still learn to speak Polish. That's my hope. Now, then we have also these untested and stupid theories of education, usually from pagans. There's a Swiss psychologist who is terribly overrated. I think psychologists are usually overrated. This man is a man named Jean Piaget, P-I-A-G-E-T. Well, he did experiments with kids about whether they're sorry for stealing bicycles or whatever. And suddenly he has this deep scientific scale about moral values. And it turns out until you're 14, you can't possibly commit a serious sin. And you've got to be at least 25 and have a Ph.D. in theology before you're really guilty. Well, that, uh, psychologists are entitled to be crazy. Anybody who's ever been there. If you, know, if you know even your own biography, if you know a little history, a little drama, a little fiction, you know how evil we are. That's part of our dogma. We are, we are owned by the devil. It is a tremendous struggle to escape from sin. That's what original sin means. That's what we are rescued from by our Holy Redeemer. But no, this genius, this scientist knows it all. So in the name of this wretched scientist, we now have first confession in the fourth grade and even then it's kind of premature and you're going to scare the hell out of those poor kids because they're only nine years old in the fourth grade and they haven't even seen a sin. And of course we have first communion because that's much easier to understand. 
transubstantiationism. Simple. So we have that in the first part, the second part. St. Pius X, who didn't study psychology, thank God, insisted on this first penance before First Communion. He was the saint who loved children. He understood how much a child needs to be healed. There's nothing frightening about having a mature counselor in confession representing Christ. And the youngster has little sinned at first, but he begins to understand the drama of the moral life. But no, no, thanks to this untested theory of, ex- of experimental psychology, you have these arrogant religious education instructors who will not allow your child to receive first pets. I know my neighbors, they have to drive out of state secretly to get their child a confession. This is an abomination. Now, and then finally, there's another great error, which is, it's a philosophical error, and I can't uh, spend too much time on it. It used to be, you went to a Catholic school and they said, class, there are ten commandments, and they are such. There are certain ways of sinning, and they are such. There are certain dogmas of the church, and they are such. Now, if you try to say that in a school, grade school, high school, college, you would be accused of the worst obscurantism possible, and the, the ultimate charge would be, you're imposing your values on other people. And apparently some declaration on religious freedom or something forbids that. So that the only way we are allowed to teach religion or morals is, is this whole point of well, this is the way I feel. And, and I personally wouldn't do it. How, how do you feel? What's your value? And this is supposed to be this wonderful moral education. There are uncertain trumpets. Now, I just want to expose the stupidity of this error. It's a philosophical error. This word, imposing my values or my, my dogmas on you, there are two different senses. It is perfectly correct to say that I ought not to impose my way of life or my values on you, if by that I mean that I force you to act against your convictions. In other words, that it would be terrible for me to say to a non-Catholic, you must go to Mass on Sunday. You must pray the rosary. And let's say I had the state police, that this were a kind of Catholic totalitarianism. And anyone absent from Sunday Mass, whether he's Jew or Protestant or agnostic, will be arrested. That's terrible. That's violating conscience. So that is correct. And it's even not right for a parent to impose upon a minor child that the child go to daily Mass. It'd be beautiful. You should encourage your children to do that. But you have no right to so direct the soul into something over and beyond the juridical need. You have a right to say it is part of the church to which you have been baptized that you fulfill Sunday obligation, and so long as you're in my house, you go to Mass. But you have no right to impose this on them. So this word imposing, in one sense, therefore, you're quite right to say we ought not to impose, in the sense that I force you to a practical action against your convictions, against even your conscience. For example, if I, if I wanted all Jews to eat pork, that can be a very cruel thing. And some of them have moral scruples about that. That would be terrible. 
But, th- but what happens if I am in a classroom as a teacher, not as a, as a secret police, and I am teaching the class something is true? No, what does it mean I'm imposing this on the class? I've taught geometry in my life, and I've taught algebra, I've taught math. And, and let's take the simplest example. I go into a first grade class, and I say, okay, class, we're going to learn the multiplication table in 7 times 4 is 28. And then says, you're going to impose it on me? Uh, what do you mean I'm imposing that on you? I say, class, it is true that four sevens are 28. And if you think it's 29, I don't have to respect your liberty of conscience. You're wrong. In questions of truth, something is right or something is wrong. I have not only the right, I have the duty to teach as true what is true. And in the moment I say, well, for me it's 28, so you make up your own mind. That's madness. Now, everybody admits that in math. That's one of the few sane disciplines left. If you have a son that you want to try to save... Let him major in math. But don't let him read the philosophy of math, because they're as nutty as the rest of them. Bertrand Russell and the like. But real math is perfectly safe. Good old sane truths which are not imposed and reason dictates. But some people say, but, you can't, but it doesn't apply to faith or morality. They act as if math is the basis of truth. But if you say Christ is God, the Blessed Virgin was always a virgin, there is a soul, there is eternity, this isn't true, this is opinion. You better make up your mind, friends, what it means to be a Catholic. I admit I cannot prove these truths with the same rational syllogism as I prove math. So in that sense, the contents of faith are beyond rational proof. But they are every bit as true. My faith tells me they're true. So in the moment I am a Catholic teacher, I have the obligation to say, class, Christ is God. It is true that Christ is God. It is true that fornication is wicked, that marriage is indissoluble, that transubstantiation is a fact. Now, I'm not imposing anything on you. I'm imposing on you as little as when I teach mathematics. If you say, but I can't buy that, well, that means you're not a Catholic. That's perfectly okay. Only one-fourth of the world is a Catholic. So we we have all these other sects. Why don't you join them and we'll have a big ecumenical get-together. You'll be at least a little honest. But how dare a priest or a nun or a lay professor with a mission from the church to teach Catholic doctrine, how dare they? In the name of not imposing anything upon people, how dare they cast doubt or ridicule or relativism on this whole thing? And therefore, I claim that this is one of the other reasons why we have such chaos in religious education, there is no conviction. Thanks to this error in philosophy about we should not impose our views on other people, even when we do believe, we are afraid to be convinced of it, lest we seem to abuse the freedom of our subjects or pupils. Now, friends, I'm getting toward the end. Please read the Bible. Don't read scripture, scholars. Read the Bible. If there's one thing you'll notice about Jesus Christ and about his apostles and his, and his disciples is they taught with authority. They were conscious of having received the truth through no merit of their own. They are sinners, we all are. But the Lord has deigned to reveal to them what is true. And to Peter, the Lord has deigned to protect him lest 
he lead the sheep into error. And when these people teach in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, they teach with authority. There's no rap session about the incarnation, the physical resurrection of Christ, the, 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 the evil of, of this or that. And, you know, that's how people recognize Christ. That's why the Catholic Church was the beacon for all time. That if you have groups of self-conscious people saying, well, it's my opinion, what's yours, and let's have a coffee clutch and let's wrap, wrap. That's not the church founded by God. God is not confused. That church, which alone is confident of his message, has even the chance to be right, even if it's wrong. At least the Muslims don't have these rap sessions. So at least if I were looking for divine guidance, I'd say, well, it's probably in Islam, because they don't have this, uh, well, maybe, and all this. No, they speak with authority. I happen to think they're wrong. But the only other alternative will be another church who speaks with authority, and which is right, which is the Church of Rome. The Church of Rome has no room in dogmatic matters, which comprise 80% of the message, really, has no room for this doubt. This corroding skepticism under the name of humility or respecting the rights of others or whatever. Now, I promised a little comfort, and in the short time remaining, I will give you this spiritual aspirin. We have, to my mind, one of the greatest personalities occupying the chair of Peter in hundreds of years. From the point of view of native intelligence, not every pope was born a genius, but intelligence alone is not enough. Of education, he has a superb education. In my kind of philosophy, by the way, phenomenology. In culture, the man understands European culture. In history and in charity. So I claim that this unmerited gift of John Paul II, something totally unexpected, is my greatest human hope. I still think, though, if Jesus Christ came in the flesh and occupied the chair of Peter, he would be pushed around still worse today than he was in Israel. I think Father Michelli's book on the Antichrist could prove that too. He would be pushed around by deans and professors and, and, and directors of religious education because he's not with it. But I still say, humanly speaking, we have this focal point and that is my great consolation that this church is a huge cultural inertial thing that we've been thundering along and this one man has to reverse the direction. He has to somehow arrest all these centrifugal forces and bring unity back to the church. He demands that he absolutely deserves our unswerving loyalty and our deep gratitude and our prayers. In our own home, we always say special prayers for that man. I think... He would have preferred to be killed because this burden will kill him. A bullet is merciful. But God had saddled him with this unequal task, humanly speaking, impossible task, of rescuing the church. And he will. If not in this papacy, pontificate, then the next. There will always be a church. But it could shrink to a few cave dwellers. We have no certainty that it will prosper numerically or whatever. But when he comes out, so let that be the principle of confidence. Anytime you're confused, you can't say, well, where do I find the truth? Well, you don't have to read the National Catholic Reporter. I, I see it on sale out there. It's one thing. If you read the National Catholic Reporter, the truth is just the opposite. That, that's your best. 
Now, the National Catholic Register is relatively good. But the National Catholic Reporter is blasphemous, horrible. Rosemary Ruth, the Mary Daly. If these people are Catholics, I am the crown prince of Buddha. They don't believe in God, never mind the church. But now let's get back closer to home that your parents or your, your, you have nieces and nephews. What is the solution to this bleak picture I painted of Catholic education? Well, first of all, I want to get back to basics. To you parents, my first advice is go back into your archives and look at the birth certificate of your children. Whose name is written there as father and mother? Your name. It's your baby. Not the bishop. The superintendent of schools, the governor, the plan uh, parenthood, the welfare society. It's your baby. That's the most important fact of all. And that means you first of all have the right to direct that child's education. And if any busybody tells you differently, would you please give them a Xerox of that birth certificate? It means, secondly, you have the responsibility. Don't you start moaning about that heretic nun or that idiot religious education teacher. She's only your servant. Dismiss her. You don't need her. You teach the child what he needs to know. Secondly, supervise. If you do elect, to have your children educated by Caesar or church bureaucrats. Supervise what they're doing. Now, there's a wretched policy which I would not obey in one, for one instant. And if you stand for it, it's your responsibility. It's this policy that youngsters are not allowed to bring home textbooks in sex education or catechism. If anyone dared to tell me that of my child, I'd pull that child out of school instantly. It is bad enough that an MD can give me a pill and not tell me what's in the pill. That should be outlawed too. My body. I hire him to give me his expert advice, but I want to know what he's doing to me. And I, I insist on knowing, what are you giving me? Are you giving me uh, uh, formaldehyde? Are you giving me cortisone or whatever? But it's insufferable that I entrust my child to Dr. X or Sister Y... And uh, don't worry, Mara, we're teaching your child well. Well, sister, what, do you, what, what book are you using in sex education, this wonderful new program? Well, well, the children have to keep it at home. You know, they get dirty. The books get dirty if you bring them home. Friends, you ought to walk into that school and demand to see the book. And if they won't show it to you, you have prima facie evidence they're hiding something. Like heresy. Like filth. If you ever saw any of the films they show your children, you'd vomit. In sex education. You ever saw the, the graphic descriptions? It reminds me of latrine art. The stuff they're serving up. It's the fifth grade, please. Penis and vagina and everything else. So you'd better make up your mind to supervise that. It's too bad you're not teaching the child yourself, but if you elect to have a hireling, you insist that that hireling show up with the materials of the trade or dismiss it. And don't be intimidated by phonies. They suddenly discover authority. The whole church is in anarchy. Nobody obeys. But suddenly, we parents have to tremble before the professional who waves that baton of authority. Thirdly, please teach the children yourself. You working mothers, look in the mirror. And ask yourself, is it absolutely necessary that you work? 
What would it mean if tomorrow you resigned? You lost a home? That's bad. It's not all that bad. Could you get another cheaper home? No, no new car? No new this? No new that? There is nothing more important than at least one parent sitting that child from their very tenderest age and teaching that child the catechism, reading the lives of saints, shut off the damn box. It's not worth it. Once in a while they have a good life of St. Francis or, or, or Peter Damien the leper, but most of the time they're perverting the child and, and stupefying the child. Read. Reading is the human spiritual vehicle. The poets transmitted a culture through singing and rhapsody. So you, in your own way, you teach your child Bible stories, Bible history, church history, lives of saints. You permeate the child's youth with these things. And you rescue the child from the paganism which surrounds it. You should also seek out those few serious schools which are still Catholic. Now, in the university and the college level, I know about six. I would trust my children to about six places in this country. There's a seventh place where I send my children. I don't trust them. But I supervise it enough to thank God they haven't been hurt yet. But the real Catholic colleges, you can count them on two fingers, two hands, their biggest enrollment maybe is 130, and a lot of your children are going to be so disappointed. They wanted to go to Harvard, and they wanted to go to a campus with 2,000 people, and you're sending that little stubby hole in, in St. Louis or, or Magdalene. Okay, if you hate your children, send them to that wonderful big campus with the, with the, with the uh, uh, sororities and fraternities. If you hate your children. I've never seen more bored, unhappy collegians than today except in these real Catholic schools. Then I say, pray for your children and with your children. You know, I get all kinds of heartache stories from women. Everybody knows my phone number now because I send out a lot of flyers. And I get phone calls, and it used to be much worse. Now i got techniques for limiting the phone calls to two hours. Well, the doctor and I said to him, and he said to me, and I said to him, and he said to me, and I got my lunch, and I, I eat my lunch while I'm listening. And, and uh, then I say, uh, do you say the rosary every day? Uh, no, no. Hey, what's wrong? You see, one woman was complaining her kids don't know the creed. I said, well, if you said the rosary every day, at least they know the Apostles' Creed. That's graduate work. You have to get to graduate school before you learn that in school. So at least if you even said the decades of the rosary, this humble, beautiful prayer, the Pope claimed it's his favorite prayer. Apart from the mess. If everyone prayed five decades with the family and even had these flashcards uh, of the mysteries and, and discussed in Advent and in, and in Easter and Lent, the thing, your children would have a marvelous religious education. It, it is, it, this, is the, this is the people's catechism. It's the penny catechism, as it were. So you have, you have no excuse if you don't pray at home. You have no excuse. You can't push the blame on all the idiots who are destroying your children. Of course they are. But you're letting them. You're not, you're not supplying the children with their, their spiritual nourishment that they need. Now, I just want to end, therefore, with this, that Christ says that we should learn the truth, and the truth will make us free. It's one of the most profound statements in all of, of, of writing, in all of our civilization. You know, in Hunter College, New York, 
to show you the level of our universities. It's part of the City University of New York. Written on the, on the building, this is at 67th Street, Learn the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Ralph Waldo Emerson. That's the gospel for Emerson. This is the state of higher education. Nobody noticed. May a touch might get a little nervous if he ever gets a little exegesis. But he probably thinks Emerson said that. Emerson said it, but he quoted the Bible. In any case, Christ said, learn the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And this is what education is all about. We Catholic adults cannot force youngsters to be saints. That's the work of grace and freedom. But we have the solemn obligation to expose youngsters to the truth, which can make them saints. So this is the vision we have to have. We have to expose youth to Catholic truth. We have to exhort youth with our, with our emphasis and sincerity in our style of life to learn Catholic truth. It is so far from boring. It's the most exciting thing in the world. The story of the church, the story of redemption, the, the theologians, the great theologians, the Catholic culture. And we have to exhort them to learn to it. To learn the truth, to submit to the truth, to love the truth, to be grateful to the truth, to live the truth, and then to be apostolic and to spread the truth. And this comes through all these means, but above all through Catholic culture. John Senior, this marvelous professor from Kansas, wrote a magnificent book called The Death of Catholic Culture. And unless we somehow revive Catholic culture, we will not succeed. And then we can say, that these, this, this, this truth of Christ will give us the true liberation. Right now, our youngsters think they are the freest beings in the world. They can fornicate on the street, on the campus, and people think it's just doing their thing and nobody will say anything about it. And that's free, free, free. Now we say this is the, this is the, these people are slaves to lust. They're wretched. They degrade themselves and their partners and they apparently cannot resist all these perversions. That's not the freedom of Christ. That Christ's truth will so far remove them from this drifting, from this false liberation, and they will be free as the blessed children of God are free. And for this we work. And for this we pray.